This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the beginning of March 2019, Ash Wednesday. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar out of Holy Name Province in New York. He's also an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. David, the pleasure is mine. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating every month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion, or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Before we get started, also wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the Sex Abuse Summit and, in particular, Sister Veronica's comments at the Sex Abuse Summit. We're going to be talking about the unfolding crisis in Venezuela. And we're also going to be talking about a recent column that uh, Dan did in National Catholic Reporter on a bishop's document on racism. Dan, how have you been? David, I've been well. We're just getting off, I guess, what most universities would call our winter break or midterm break. At uh, CTU, we call it reading week. There is no break in graduate study of theology and ministry. You have to keep on trucking. But in effect, it is. It's, it's a break in the middle of the semester so that students can catch up, do work on their research projects, catch up on reading, that sort of thing. Likewise, for faculty, it allows us to do exactly that grading, preparation, that kind of stuff. Also traveling or doing research, which is partly what I did. So I was in Albany, New York at the one kind of bookend weekend of of the trip for a meeting for the Franciscan Friars. We have these regional meetings where we get together and annually and, you know, discuss uh, important issues or, or attend workshops and that kind of thing. That was really nice. It was great to be with the brothers, great to be at my old stopping grounds. I, I taught in the academic year 2010, 2011 there. And then I went from there to Louisville, Kentucky. And I was there for two reasons. The primary one was to give an annual lecture that I was invited to give at Bellarmine University. 
And the other reason was um, I received some research grant money to work in the archives, the Thomas Merton archives. So as I'm working on a long-term research project, book project on Merton's correspondence with his editor and uh, agent and friend, it afforded me an opportunity to spend several days working with unpublished materials. And then uh, the this most recent weekend, uh, just a few days ago, I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is a great place to be in February if you like sub-zero temperatures. <laughs> I was going back to the Louisville thing. I saw several tweets of like little uh, snapshots that you had taken of various Mertonalia. Can I yes. use that word? Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, actually, it was it was. I, th- I think I was highlighting some marginalia of marginalia, as you would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I'm glad that your travels have been good. I'm glad that you're back someplace relatively warmer, even though it's not very warm today. It's weird to think that Chicago is the, the warm destination after a few days in Sioux Falls. But I was there visiting uh, some very dear friends of mine and their twin baby girls who just turned one at the beginning of the month. And uh, one of the, the girls is my goddaughter, so it was good to see them. I haven't seen them in a few months. So despite the cold, it was worth it to be with people people uh, that I care about, good friends. How are you? Well, I'm good. We had a very full weekend. So there's a Mardi Gras is coming up soon. And so the school where my kids go, they had a Mardi Gras dance on Saturday night. And uh, my son did not want to go, but my daughter did. And this is kind of taking the place this year of the father-daughter dance that the school usually has. And so my daughter and I went and cut the rug, tripped the light fantastic. She got her face painted. She ran around screaming with her friends. There was a magic show. We got beads. I mean, it was good fun, and I was not overwhelmed because I had earplugs in my ears. So, (laughs) you know, I've learned how to uh, make these things work on my level so that they are not triggering and that they're very enjoyable. And then on Sunday... Uh, Can I ask a question about the music? Did they have like a DJ or did they have a band or something? They had a DJ. Just a a loud, blaring DJ. It wasn't, this year it wasn't as loud, thankfully. They were in a different venue and the DJ was a little bit more sensitive. In other years, that's why I always bring the earplugs. In other years, it's very booming. But we live on the south side of Chicago. And so the soundtrack that the DJ plays brings me back to my days living on the east side of Atlanta, you know, uh, the neighborhood of Outkast. And so just a lot of good soul and a lot of good um, hip-hop from back in the day, and some contemporary stuff, too. So that was a lot of fun. And and then on Sunday, there's a good children's museum here in Chicago, and there's a family that we've gotten to know, and so five kids and four adults went to the children's museum all day yesterday, and again, that was not overwhelming. Again, I had earplugs, but I had a really good time, and it seems like the kids did, too. What I'm Speaking of travel, what I'm excited to be gearing up for is in a couple of weeks— you and I have something happening, and uh, it's the L.A. Congress for Religious Education. And you've been there. You're an old hand. It's my first time going there. But part of what we're doing there is we're going to be doing a live recording. And so I've been putting together a little mobile studio to take with us on the road, and I'm very excited about that. Those who follow uh, Francis Effect Pod on Twitter will have seen pictures uh, tweeted out by our uh, beloved co-host and producer, one Dr. David Dalt. Uh, so you can see said uh, travel setup. It's very cool, and I know we've gotten some love uh, and response. People f- seem very impressed and excited. Yes, some other podcasters have also been asking me technical questions behind the scenes, so I'm happy to share information about why I chose what I chose, but it's you know, I, I've been doing this for several years, and I've been doing remote recording for several years, and it used to be a very large and laborious affair. I've gotten it down to where now it's two bags. It'll fit on a plane. 
I'm very happy about that. But I'm still always trying to get it smaller. So if anybody has hints or tips, I'm also happy to receive advice about this. So, yeah. So on that note about um, LA Religious Ed Congress, that's going to be March 22nd to 24th in Anaheim, California. You can check out the information in the lineup on the web. It's basically the biggest gathering of, of Catholic writers, uh, speakers, religious leaders. It is a veritable who's who. It's sometimes dubbed in no, no small part because of the neighboring institution, which is Disneyland. It's oftentimes called the Catholic Disney World, but there are about 20,000 adults. On Thursday, there are about 20,000 or 15,000 high school, Catholic high school students from across California. So together, you're talking about 35, maybe 40,000 people over the weekend that are coming to learn about their faith, to attend workshops, listen to theologians, listen to the pastors and spiritual speakers. Um, and it's really it's extraordinary. And, and the exhibit hall where David and I will be for our various live recordings is the, again, kind of who's who of Catholic publishing, music publishing. You know, you can get any kind of religious trinket and tchotchke that you want. If you need 800 rosaries, somebody there will be able to wholesale them for you. So it's, it's really extraordinary. And it's a combination of ongoing education and formation, liturgical celebration, and, and just a, a good time for people to come together. But it is, it's, it's hard to explain unless you go there. So I'm excited, David. We're going to have to do a, a debriefing uh, segment as well. What did you take in? What did you experience? I'm looking forward to it. I've done conferences before, but never one like this. And so I'm, I'm eager to go and I'm eager to, I hope, meet some Francis Effect fans. That would be fun too. This is like AAR but fun. (laughs) AAR without snark. So he's referring to the American Academy of Religion, which I can say from 20 years of going to it is not fun. It's Yeah, fun isn't the word I use to describe it. No. No. Well, with that, let's go ahead and take a a short break, and then we'll be back with the topics. And so thank you again for listening. You're you're tuned into The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks we get together to discuss topics and issues through a lens informed by a shared Catholic faith. Today we're going to be talking about the recent, and this might even be the right place to start, Dan, because I'm not even sure what to call it. Was it a conclave? Was it a summit? Was it a was it a synod? What just happened? Yeah, great. So what, what 
you're referring to, David, for our listeners, is this event that just took place in Rome called by Pope Francis, where 190 bishops from around the world, as well as some other religious leaders and experts, were brought together to discuss the global issue of clergy sexual abuse and, and even more importantly, the covering up of that, particularly by bishops and, and those in leadership in the church. And so your question is a good one. People aren't exactly sure. What is this exactly? We just had the closing in October of the Synod of Bishops on Young People. Several years back, we had the Synod of Bishops on the Family two years in a row. We had two sessions of that. And people aren't quite sure, is this a synod? What is this? And the truth is, it's not a conclave uh, in terms of technical distinctions. Conclave comes from the Latin conclave, meaning with a key. It's a reference to when the College of Cardinals get together to elect uh, the Bishop of Rome, to elect a Pope, particularly in certain epics of ages past, certain medieval and uh, late Renaissance conclaves, the Chamberlain of, of the Holy See literally had to lock the cardinals into a room. They weren't allowed to leave until they came out with, you know, the requisite number of votes and there was, there was a new Bishop of Rome. So that's where that term conclave comes from. So this was definitely not that. It also was not a synod. So a synod of bishops is, it looks in some ways very similar to what happened last week. A synod is a representative gathering of bishops from around the world, and that's distinct from uh, an ecumenical council, which is a gathering of all the bishops of the world. And a synod focuses on a particular doctrinal or pastoral issue, and these bishops get together in in a a rather formal way to address that topic. There's lots of preparation in advance. Uh, Usually it's announced a year or two years or sometimes three years in advance. This was not that. This was um, what has been called a summit. And it's, it's kind of a secular term, a summit, sort of like you have a peace summit or you have a uh, economic summit or something like that, human rights summit. And maybe that is a better analog for us, that this was kind of like an ecclesial human rights summit, that, that it became quite evident that the issue of uh, the history of clergy sexual abuse and its cover-up was uh, of such import and so urgently in need of address, particularly after former Cardinal uh, McCarrick, you know, that incident sort of highlighted the fact that this goes all the way up to bishops, to cardinals, um, and, and there needed to be some way to respond to this. And McCarrick has just recently been laicized, is that correct? Yeah, let me just say something about that. In terms of the, the language, that's technically the term. Okay. That, that's correct. And there's been some confusion and some offense uh, online, and understandably so, because it sounds like if you do something so egregious, the way you get punished is you become a layperson, mm. which mm. which is which is offensive when we talk about Lumen Gentium and this idea that there is the equal dignity and the universal call to holiness of all the baptized. Well, and also theologically, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, so there's a, there's an ontological question about whether holy orders can be removed. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't want to open the can of worms about, you know, ontological change or indelible character, because actually ontological change is not the church's teaching, despite its common usage. This notion of indelible character is, and the other way that the church talks about indelible characters is in baptism. So just like you can never be unbaptized yet, you know, you might enter by some act or, or some process, you might act outside of the church, you might be... Schism, apostasy. Exactly. In which case you are de facto excommunicated. You're outside of communion. You're still a baptized Christian. Mm -hmm. So the analog here is, that's exactly right. You know, Theodore McCarrick is still a bishop. He's still a priest. And when he celebrates the sacraments, they're still valid. Yeah. The issue is lucidity. Mm -hmm. He does not have the right to minister in the church as a priest, as a bishop. 
And that's where this term laicized comes from. So anyways, I, I hope this isn't too much of a rabbit hole for our, our listeners. But, you know, these, these are important distinctions to make because people will say, well, wait a minute. You know, what does it mean to be laicized? The technical canonical penalty is to be, and this again is mildly offensive, but it's called being reduced to the clerical state. You can see, or reduced to the lay state rather, which is simply to say you're not part of the clergy. You don't have that clerical identity as part of the ordained guild, yet he is still a valid priest and a valid bishop. Well, and part of this has to do then, I think, with the larger question of what this summit was all about. Did this summit have teeth? Can it actually have any kind of effect other than simply putting out white papers and pronouncements? So this was the big question going into it, right? So the Holy Father said uh, last year, last fall, particularly in the wake of what was going on in the United States, we saw around the world there were other pressing issues that, that weren't exactly our challenges here in the States. So we see in places, particularly in the developing world, parts of Africa, we saw in the subcontinent of India, the abuse of nuns, N-U-N-S, religious sisters that is. There are other challenges that face the church around sexual scandal or or abuse and and harassment and and that extends beyond minors but but the issue around minors was something that the u s has been particularly good at it may not seem that way given the coverage in the media. But certainly since 2002, really beginning at least since 1992 in certain areas, it's gotten pretty good. However, what has become evident over the last six, seven, nine months is that we haven't been very good at reckoning with the history. And that's what we saw with the Pennsylvania grand jury. You know, for all the perhaps problems like Peter Steinfels pointed out with that report – what it legitimately does is point out that we still haven't, as an institutional church, acknowledged the kind of patterns of, of criminality, patterns of sin, patterns of cover-up. Well, and more to the point, and I, I don't have ready to hand the cardinal who mentioned it, but there was at least one cardinal at this summit who also disclosed that massive amounts of information and evidence have been expunged and destroyed over the years as well. And so that's that's another piece of this is, you know, I think that the public trust of the curia to actually self-govern is is very thin right now. Yeah, who you're referring to is, is German Cardinal Reinhard Marx. And he is, uh, in addition to having <laughs> a last name that might freak people out, um, he is, to my knowledge, not related to Karl Marx, also German. But, but Cardinal Marx is uh, the president of the German Bishops' Conference, which is why he was at this meeting. And he's the one who spoke and made this reference that you're talking about. He did not say, you know, tons and tons of documents were destroyed. He did acknowledge, however, that file. and I'm, I mean, here's a direct quote from his presentation – Files that could have documented the terrible deeds and named those responsible were destroyed or not even created, end quote. Meaning that there, he's acknowledging that there are instances where there wasn't proper documentation or when there was, that it wasn't kept around or it wasn't handed to the appropriate authorities and so forth. So that's a, that's a clear acknowledgement of, of problems. And so back to like what is the purpose of this summit? Pope Francis wanted, and, and listeners may recall that there was this awkward and, and infuriating change of events in November at the annual Bishops' Conference meeting in Washington. And this was an announcement that Cardinal DiNardo, who is the president of the USCCB, of the U.S. bishops, uh, announced very early in the gathering that they had received a missive from the Holy See that they were not to vote on, le- on binding legislation about how to handle bishops who are responsible for cover-up or somehow implicated in abuse. That really upset 
the bishops, it upset uh, commentators, it upset it, it upset a lot of people here in the states. It seems that the reason that was handled, the timing of everything around that was handled very poorly, which is not unusual, unfortunately, for the way that the the church deals with what we might call PR and transparency and communication. That aside, part of what motivated that was in Rome, Pope Francis and those in, in curial leadership realized that they couldn't just on a micro level let the U.S. pass something and then let the Germans pass something and, and not have a consistent, rigorous, clear policy uh, through the whole universal church about how to deal with this, that this was going to be too important to just do this ad hoc. And so that's that's really the positive side to look at this, and I think it's an authentic and, and real legitimate way to look at it. So the Pope calls this summit where he says the heads, the presidents of all the bishops' conferences of the world are to come to Rome and they're going to address this. What was the purpose? Well, first and foremost, there are parts of the world that did not recognize child clergy abuse as, as a legitimate concern. Either they, you know, for whatever reason, and I think there are analogs to like, I think of the Islamic Republic of Iran, where you'd have previous presidents or religious leaders that say like, there are no gay people in Iran. You know, similar kind of insane denial. Child abuse happens in all cultures, in all contexts, mostly within families um, and in, in other settings, but it certainly happens too within the church. And so it's not an American thing. It's not a Western European thing. It's, it's a universal thing. And so Pope Francis wanted all the bishops to come together so that they could look at the facts as they were. There was a lot of anticipatory hand-wringing about could anything be done in something that wasn't even a week-long gathering. And I think that's fair. But what it did do is set the bar. What it did do is set, we might say, if not a juridical floor, it set an, an ideological and conversational floor that the Catholic Church throughout the world recognizes that this is a real issue, that things need to change. And Pope Francis vowed at the end of this summit to enact real change, enact real policies, we could say, juridical policies to govern this. Well, and, and on that, I... So an honest listening and an honest hearing, I think, was part of the spirit of what was trying to be done here. And in that spirit, one of the speakers that gained international attention was Sister Veronica Openibo. She's a nun from Nigeria, and she spoke to the gathering of bishops. And I want to highlight, and I know that you've got some highlights as well as to what she said, I want to start where she ended, because I thought where she ended was very interesting. She her last words were quoting Pope Francis, who says, a Christian who does not move forward has an identity that is not well. The gospel is clear. The Lord sent them out saying, go, go forward. The Christian walks, moves past difficulties, and announces that the kingdom of God is near. This exhortation to the bishops to get up and walk, to do some movement, when I heard that, it echoed for me actually a document from Pope John Paul II called Arise, Let Us Be On Our Way which was an exhortation that he made to the bishops about what it meant to have a vocation as a bishop. And I, I, even though it's not a direct connection, I found it an interesting parallel that she ended there with this echo of, you know, the exhortation to the bishops to do something that enacts their vocation, even though that document from John Paul II didn't talk about their goal and their need to protect the vulnerable who were 
victims of sex abuse. So what I saw her doing in a very subtle and powerful way is tying Pope Francis's words to Pope John Paul II's words, and in both cases, exhorting the bishops, you've got now to move and not just talk. Now, am I reading that wrong? Or No, I think, I think that's exactly right. In fact, a number of commentators have drawn parallels between Sister Veronica's intervention, as it's called, her, her presentation at this summit, to uh, a very powerful and, and now kind of classic presentation that Sister Thea Bowman here in the United States gave uh, some decades ago at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops meeting where she exhorted her brother bishops or brother Christians that are bishops responsible for leadership to acknowledge the realities of racism and injustice in our society. And and she did in, the, in, a, in a style similar to Sister Veronica. One might imagine, you know, the Catherine of Siena kind of style where there was this powerful exhortation um, that was that was righteous and, and just. The question is, will they will they hear it? It seems like they have. You know, there are a couple things that really struck me about Sister Veronica's intervention. One was that she referred directly, and she's sitting on a panel right next to the Holy Father. She refers to Pope Francis directly as my brother Francis, which I, I love. I mean, it, it's truly that Franciscan dimension there at play that, you know, what really matters is that you know, you look at this panel, here is a, a Christian woman, here is a Christian man, that one happens to be the Bishop of Rome, one happens to be a Nigerian sister in leadership, and she is in leadership at, with the international organization, similar to what we have in the United States with LCWR. It's kind of an umbrella organization in Rome. In any event, the fact that she says, you know, on the one hand, she praises him and says, I, I think, you know, what happened in Chile where you at first, you know, you made a mistake. You at first defended the bishops, but then you, she says, my brother Francis, you were a true Jesuit who then engaged in discernment and reflection and recognized that you made a mistake and, and acknowledged that and turned course. I think she held, she said, in fact, that that's a model for all of us. And I think she meant all of us Christians, but all of those gathered there, all the bishops. There are two things that she really highlighted that I think are really important. The first is the universal problem of abuse. And this is important coming from, as she acknowledges, the global south, where at times you have bishops uh, in Nigeria, bishops in India, bishops in uh, Sri Lanka, wherever, that will say, you know, oh, that's all nice and well that in the United States and in Western Europe you're concerned about, you know, this idiosyncratic child abuse crisis, we here are worried about having enough food to eat or about civil war or about child soldiers and these kinds of things. And, and what Sister Veronica does is say, it's, it's not an either or, <laughs> you know, and don't let, in fact, she says here, and I quote, the fact that there are huge issues of poverty, illness, war, and violence in some countries in the global south does not mean that the area of sexual abuse should be downplayed or ignored. The church has to be proactive in facing it, end quote. So that's very powerful because here's a, a woman religious who's in leadership, who's from the global south, who's calling out her brother bishops from her own context, but also those in other parts of the world and saying, we see this, this is real, we cannot avoid it. You know, don't play off other admittedly legitimate concerns as more important than this. We need to address all of these. And you said that there were two, and so that that's one is is you know don't don't look at this supposed bifurcation between the North and the global South, but instead realize that this is a universal problem. Yeah, the second thing is clericalism. 
And, and I could not agree more on, on both of these points. And she says, and I quote here, it worries me when I see in Rome and elsewhere, the youngest seminarians being treated as though they were more special than everyone else, thus encouraging them to assume from the beginning of their training exalted ideas about their status. And she goes on to say, what damage has that thinking done to the mission of the church? And, and I couldn't agree more. I think clericalism, this idea of being set apart, being above and other than, as opposed to with and servant to, you know, it, it's not a one for one that clericalism causes sexual abuse. Just like married, you know, uh, heterosexual couples, that causes sexual abuse because that's where it happens as well. Nevertheless, this idea that one is special, one is immune from the rules that other people are, one is above and is unaccountable to others, that sense of clericalism, Sister Veronica points out, is a real, real problem. Well, and she goes on and she says, we proclaim the Ten Commandments and parade ourselves as being custodians of moral standards and values and good behavior in society. Hypocrites at times? Yes. And again, there's, there's subtle references here and not so subtle. This to me, when I, when I heard this, it's you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give the tithe of anise and cumin, but you leave off the weightier matters of justice and the law. It's this notion of keeping the appearance but leaving behind the actual substance of care and pastoral duty and all of those things. And what I really loved about this is that, is, again, just as you said, this sort of clericalism that raises some people up, she's undoing that with Brother Francis, with just the whole way that she's approaching this. We have to realize that there's not a distinction. And in fact, these distinctions allow for darkness and darkness allows for these kinds of offenses to continue. Yeah, that's right. I think one of the great gifts of of Sister Veronica's insight and and, uh, directness is that she highlights the intersecting challenges, that that it's not a one-shot thing. It's not something that can be easily patched over. Like clergy sexual abuse and its cover-up is, is one thing that we can address apart from the other realities of power in the church, of self-understanding, of, of a lack of humility, or as Pope Francis calls, a poor church for the poor. I, I think these are all of, of a part, and it raises other questions. And, and admitted, we have to triage. As a church worldwide, as a local church, whether in Chicago or whether the U.S. as a conference, um, et cetera, we need to address, you know, and make sure there are policies in place to hold uh, the clergy, but especially the bishops accountable for this so that these things never happen again or, or happen – that these things never happen again. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like I, I, I'm hesitating around that, around that because you can't ever – prevent any of this from ever happening. But, but you know, so I don't know how exactly to word that. I don't know if you have a better way to say I, I don't. And I think the other problem that we're facing is that with the summit just ending, it's not clear yet how this is actually going to manifest on the ground in the global church. There are some hints about how that's going to take place. And, and part of it is that it seems very clear that Pope Francis is going to, in short order, issue a motu proprio, which is uh, kind of the quickest and most direct way. It's, it's how popes can change or amend the code of canon law. It's how you can enact policies. Think of it as analogous in the church to a, an executive action of the president of the United States. And so um, it's within his power. The motu proprio literally means like on my authority. And so I, I think we're going to see some things. The problem is this is where your favorite concept I'll use as an analogy of subsidiarity. You, you can't – this is not IBM. This is not GE. You don't, you don't manage from the top down this way. The church is a communion of local communions. And so what the motu proprio is going to do is make some changes to the code, I'm sure, to, to shore that up. But it's also going to – he's going to set out a mandate 
that in these different regional areas that they adopt certain protocols and and because the way that the church relates to local authorities in different parts of the world varies and so you can't out of out of Rome dictate every particular dimension of this. In any event, I, I think what this also does is, yeah, as I was saying, we need to triage this very important issue, but Sister Veronica's intervention also points to the fact that issues of sexism, of clericalism, of power, of the church's, I would say, complicated handling of sexuality in general, theologically, ethically, and so forth. I'm not saying that these are causal in relationship to abuse or its cover-up, but but there are questions that are being raised in many different aspects of what it is we say we believe, how it is that the church actually practices its faith, and uh, and there's a lot to learn and there's a lot that needs to be examined. Well, I'm sure that we'll come back to this as we see more of the effects of this summit in the days to come, but for right now, this might be a good place for us to stop. Once again, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with my friend David Dalt. Every couple of weeks we get together to look at current events, politics, culture, and do that through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. We're switching gears now to take a look at the ongoing humanitarian and political crises. Uh, we should throw an economic crisis, for that matter, in uh, the country of Venezuela. As listeners may know, there has been a, a quite a bit of struggle, in part because of the economic instability and a contested presidential election. David, what do we make of this? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot to parse out in particular, and part of the process of parsing is figuring out what information you can trust. Some of the facts that we know, Venezuela has the richest oil reserves in the world. And because of that, it has a, a certain amount of economic, or it has tried to have a certain amount of economic independence, which has been attenuated by colonialism. And so there has been a long history of intervention by Western and Northern powers in the politics of Venezuela to try and have control for the purposes of business over this oil reserve. And there has been pushback from various governments, and those governments can be described as socialist or communist, depending on when you're, you're looking at it. But 
like all of these labels, the difficulty is, is that, you know, one person's socialism is another person's sort of authoritarian kleptocracy. So it's very difficult to actually say what kind of government is currently operative. Hugo Chavez was the president for a period of time, had a very strong anti-American stance, was very, you know, proud to posture and to be sort of a, a bully pulpit against what could be considered Western imperialism. Since Hugo Chavez died, Nicolas Maduro has been the recent president. They just went through a presidential election, and that presidential election has been contested. And that has been used as either uh, it's either the facts on the ground or the pretext for a series of events which are currently unfolding, which are not entirely clear. If you just look at North American media here in the United States, the narrative seems pretty clear. It's an authoritarian government. They are refusing humanitarian aid. And the popular sentiment of the people is that they wish for the Maduro government to be changed. If you actually look at other international sources of news and if you look at other uh, reporters that are talking to people on the ground, you get a very different story. So part of the problem is with a long history of U.S. intervention in destabilization in regimes like this, it's hard to know who to trust and it's hard to know where to get facts that are reliable. And so that's that's sort of an overview, but I'd love to get kind of your your take on this as well. Yeah, I think it's, if I had any hair left on my head, I would be pulling it out because this is an instance, I think, of the, the consequence of what I would call in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, you know, the United States being the boy that cried dictator. Whereas, you know, there were all these efforts at regime change, uh, particularly during the 80s under the Reagan administration, um, but it preceded that as well, where you had uh, assassinations, you had military coups that were sponsored by the U.S.'s complicity in the training of the military, um, uh, the support of, of dictators because of the fear or the threat of communism or of socialism of some kind. In Venezuela, it's interesting because uh, Chavez had the benefit of a robust oil-based economy and could afford, quite literally afford, to um, – Chavez literally could afford to be this kind of chest-beating anti-U.S. leader who, who rallied South American and Central American support against the United States and its perceived kind of imperial practices, its neocolonialization and colonialism. The problem is that Maduro, who was sort of Chavez's heir apparent and, and did uh, – he was elected, it seems to be legitimately in his first term. Uh, after Chavez dies, he's the one who kind of picks up um, in 2013, I think it was. The problem is that the oil economy has tanked. And so Venezuela, which was operating with a kind of populist isolationism, could afford because of the incoming oil revenue – to get by without dealing with a lot of systemic issues that it hadn't addressed. Maduro um, holds on to power, it seems, with this uh, recent election, and it coincides with rising inflation, just absolutely insane inflation. So um, according to the BBC, and actually this is a Bloomberg statistic that they quote, that in the 12 months prior to November 2018, the annual inflation rate rose to one. 0.3 million percent. 
So what that means is by the end of last year, prices for everyday products were doubling every 19 days on average. To put that into context, from kind of the beginning of 2018 to where we are now in 2019, the value of, of the bolivars, the, uh, the currency in um, Venezuela, you need about 1,600 bolivars to equal one U.S. dollar. The rate of inflation in the economy is completely insane. People cannot afford a potato. And I mean, this this is similar to what we saw in the Weimar Republic right before the rise of World War II and Nazism. I mean, so there, so there are economic factors of real crisis going on. At the same time, we have to remember that, for example, when Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon were thinking about the various South American countries that were resisting their kind of colonial expansion, one of the phrases that they, that they bandied about was, we're going to make their economies scream. And so these kind of inflationary tactics, they either are natural results of bad management on the part of the Maduro government, or they're the result of some external interference on the part of other powers. And part of my difficulty with this is figuring out what to tease out, mm-hmm. figuring out, you know, again, when we say that or when we when we pick voices from Venezuela to be representative of what the people of Venezuela want, we're getting a very filtered view of that, whether we're looking at mainstream media in the United States or left-wing or right-wing media in the, in the United States. None of us are there and are actually getting a kind of direct feel for what is going on on the ground. And Though, the, I don't know. I mean, I would say I think that's that's partly true. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the New York Times has done some impressive work on the ground. In fact, you know, uh, a few years ago, there were all these issues with Maduro, for instance. His, his re-election was occasioned by his house arresting, his jailing of his leading opponents. I mean, that's part of... I mean, it's it's clear that it is not a legitimate election. Uh, that's one one statement of fact. And he's expelled foreign journalists as recently as this week. You know, as of this recording, he expelled his neighboring country's diplomatic representatives, the Colombians he kicked out, in part because the Colombians have the stockpile of humanitarian aid that's come from international sources that Maduro will not allow into the country for fear that this is this creeping sort of colonial invasion and then it's a kind of a Trojan horse for an overthrow. So I I, I see what you're saying. I, I do agree with you. I think well, and, and let me just say the reason why he thinks it's a Trojan horse for an overthrow is because we have a history of using humanitarian aid as Trojan that's horses exactly right. for overthrow. So that's exactly it, he's right. not making this up out of whole cloth. No, no, he's not. But I, I, but this is where it becomes really complicated. I know it goes back to <laughs> it goes back to my point about you know the United States has been you know uh, the country that's cried dictator. It's the boy who's cried wolf, and we may actually have a case now where you have some who really does need to be deposed and needs to be done so in according with the processes and laws of the Venezuelan people and government, which is what the opposition party in their equivalent of Congress has attempted to do, right? You have the leader of, of the assembly, the National Assembly, named Guaido, who, according to the Constitution of Venezuela, if the president is not legitimately elected or the, the, the vote is not ratified by by their equivalent of Congress, their National Assembly, then that leader assumes a temporary kind of a, a president pro temp 
And so there's this, this is the tension, right? The international community, including the United States, including a number of the neighbors in, in South and Central America to Venezuela, have recognized Guaido's rightful place as the temporary president. And Maduro is, is viewing that as a threat and using the rhetoric, as I understand it, that exactly you're describing, where he's saying, look, we've been, we've been down this road before. This is just the United States. This is just the imperial West trying to come in because they don't like me. And I think there's something to be said about there are a fair number of well-meaning, run-of-the-mill people on the ground who remember the, the great kind of populist work of Chavez and that Maduro was his heir apparent and, and take him at his word even as decisions he's making seem to be against their interest. That's, he's literally starving them to death. Yeah. I, I mean, is that not correct? I well, mean, do you disagree? I don't I, know. So I, I, wish, I wish that I had a magic ball to a crystal ball to look in to know what is correct. And part of my cynicism about this has to do with sort of looking at the long history of Central and South America and looking at the interests of United Fruit, for example, being oh, defended yeah. over the interests of the people on the ground and absentee and client landholders. And we're looking at an economic resource that is worth a lot more than bananas when we're talking about the mineral deposits in Venezuela. What I'm interested in asking you about now is the bishops. Because the bishops in Venezuela have said very clearly that they see this government as illegitimate and they would like to see a change in government. And I'm getting this from National Catholic Reporter back in January. This is an article from January 14th, 2019. And so I'm interested in, you know, to the extent that the bishops sometimes have been good calls for human rights in South and Central America, and sometimes the bishops have been complicit in human rights abuses in Central and South America— where do we hear the voice of the bishops in this right now? Well, I, I'm not sure if I entirely understand the question. Is it that, you know, should we take them at their word? Is that the question? Or I, you mean I, the bishops of the United States? No, I mean, no, the, the, these are the bishops in Venezuela yeah. who, are, who are making this call. And so, we're, yeah, we're, I, I think, well, again, I think they offer us some of that insight that you said we, meaning you and I in particular, uh, in this conversation do not have because we're not, quote, on the ground or, you know, because we are all affected by the optics of and the reality of our kind of neocolonialist history and anti-communist rhetoric and, and the de deposition of different governments because of that fear. I would say, given what we know in the international reporting, what has been reported on the ground as, as best can be deciphered, I, I would trust the bishops on this. I think this is, you know, the inst instance, the situation in Venezuela, there are a couple things that, that are worth stating that I know you and I are on the same page about. One is there is a, a very legitimate humanitarian crisis, mm -hmm. period. I mean, this is not made up. There was a report in, I think it was in the Washington Post, maybe it was in the New York Times over the weekend, you know, the photography of which just showed people are literally starving to death. Mm -hmm. And it's deeply troubling to think that there are neighboring countries that are willing to help and that the international community has been trying to respond to this. There are truckloads of food on the other side of, you know, Colombia, for instance, just across the border. This is not a fancy marbled hallway political debate. This is hundreds of thousands and millions of lives at stake. I just I keep thinking about the pendulum of international intervention. And I think about the tremendously important work in Catholic moral theology of somebody like David Hollenbach, the Jesuit theologian, professor at Boston College, well now at Georgetown University for a long time at Boston College. 
And I think about, you know, I TA'd a, a course for him um, when I was in doctoral studies and, and learned just a tremendous amount. I mean, ethics is not my primary area of interest, as everybody knows, and let alone kind of state intervention and humanitarian crises, which is what he's known for. And I just keep thinking in this instance of the kind of hot and cold of international communities, but the United States in particular, when it comes to humanitarian crises. So what happened, for instance, in the 90s, when we saw, you know, you can trace it almost, it's, it's sad, and I don't mean to reduce the real tragedies, the particular tragedies to some kind of chart, but you can do sort of like positive, negative, positive, negative, in terms of hot and cold intervention. You think of what happened in the early 90s with Black Hawk Down in the Somalian humanitarian crisis, where, you know, the U.S. sent troops, people died in an effort what started out as an effort to bring food to a famine-plagued northeastern African community. And because of the blowback of those deaths that were just seemingly, you know, unnecessary or totally arbitrary, the U.S. was very skittish about getting involved in humanitarian crises around the world. And so you you fast forward a couple of years and we have the Rwandan genocide crisis where the U.S., again, under the same president, here we have in this case, you know, President Clinton again, does not intervene. And the rest of the world waiting for some kind of leadership does not intervene. And we saw the tragedy that unfolded there. Fast forward to what's going on in the former Yugoslavia with Croatian and Serbian and, and um, you know, what, what, what happens in terms of ethnic cleansing and uh, the religious and political tensions that exist in Eastern Europe there. And now the U.S. intervenes yet again in Bosnia. And so I, I don't know. The, the parallel I'm drawing is like we screwed up in the 70s and 80s, big time. We definitely screwed up as a country and in terms of our political policy. And we're paying the consequence of that. And I wonder if, I don't know, I just, I see some kind of parallel of of the hot and cold, the, I don't know, am I making any sense? You are, you are. And so let me let me push back a little bit and and sort of try and figure out where I'm coming at this. We seem to be very willing to intervene when there are business interests at stake, and we seem to be very unwilling to have a level playing field or regularized relations with a country that is avowedly socialist. Historically, that's been true, but I also think we're we're skittish to intervene mm-hmm. when we've been burned previously. Yeah, yeah. And and I wonder if if there was something that could have been done earlier had we not— gone on this anti-communist, you know, regime change tour in Central and South America in the 70s and 80s, that we would have the credibility to intervene in this humanitarian crisis in a way that we don't have right now. Well, and this speaks, I think, to the larger point that I want to make, and that is why is the, and I understand why, the United States' interest is always sullied by these two seemingly conflicting goals— we want to be humanitarian and intervene and help people that are starving and in crisis. But at the same time, we become insistent that we must impose a market when we do. And that, I mean, self-determination is self-determination. And if, if a country has decided through whatever means that they, they wish to have something that is not beholden to Western markets, that seems very problematic for the interests of the United States. And I think that that's, that conflict in interests makes it difficult for us to have these kinds of discussions. And the the litany that you just laid out of the various points, like in each case, there's a clear humanitarian crisis, but we seem sullied about how to proceed. And again, looking at the long history, when there's, when there's a clear business interest, we almost have a unilateral 
desire to proceed. And to me, that makes things more complex and more difficult is I, I wish that the United States could have a clear moral presence in the world where, you know, democracy is good and democracy means that the people on the ground are choosing their life and their livelihood, the pursuit of their happiness. Oftentimes we have allowed democracy to the point that it pursues American happiness and not the happiness of those who are most directly involved in the decisions that they're making. And that to me is, is the problematic thing. If we, don't, we don't have a good record as a country in doing any of this the right way. And you, you, in, in the sense that you said about Somalia and those other humanitarian failures, part of that has to do with the fact that we flinch when it comes to actually saving human lives. And we don't flinch when it comes to saving U.S. business interests, you know, bananas, for example. Yeah, and I also think that you know, there's this kind of privilege of delusion in the United States context, too, that people think that we are these kind of harbingers. The United States is the harbinger of democracy and freedom around the world. Well, tell that to the Iraqi people after, you know, the invasion in 2003. You know, it was George W. Bush's – it's true that Saddam Hussein was a dictator. He was – you know, oppressive. I mean, there's no, I'm not questioning that. Well, and prior to 2003, we had been bombing them every Friday for eight years before that, you yeah. know, through the Clinton administration, specifically on the Muslim holy day, we had been doing, we had been doing bombing raids. And, you know, I've worked with some photojournalists that were there who, you know, show the effects of that, the schools, the hospitals that were bombed out. And so, I mean, we're, we don't have a good record on no, this. No, no, that's exactly my point yeah. is to say that, you know, there's also, very the consequences are wide ranging because that decision which you know it's not that the people of Iraq didn't need assistance didn't need help but the way we went about doing that created a vacuum that ISIS was born in and people forget about that it's not to say do we just turn a blind eye and let people like Saddam Hussein I mean are there not other ways and this is what Samantha Power I think talks about oftentimes um, former UN ambassador and uh, for the United States and and uh, just an expert on these sorts of things in terms of international relations she has an award-winning book a very very famous kind of scholarly study about what happened in Rwanda and the lack of action I mean she was involved in in government at the time too I, you're right I, I think I bring that up and we bring up all these other instances to say that you know, we think we're the best and the rest of the world is incredibly skeptical and with good reason about when the United States starts, you know, flexing its muscle or intervening in places. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, an important responsibility and this is one where they kind of bring it back full circle to your original, you know, I, I don't know that we're solving anything. I don't know. I, I think it's just a lament and that, you know, what can we do about this? Well, and this is, this is kind of where I want to make sure I'm clear and this may be probably the last thing that I would need to say on this subject for right now. I think that there is a that there's a white liberal or leftist American response to moments like this where we see a little bit of news reporting and we immediately say we should do X and we should do it now. And I just want to hesitate on that reflex, that kind of comfortable no skin in the game white liberal reflex that is there in me to look at a couple of news reports that have been kind of laid out for me like breadcrumbs and suddenly have a a response that calls for unilateral action when really I don't know what's happening there. And so what I want listeners to hear and what I want to convey to you is simply hesitancy to know how best to act. And that hesitancy is born out of a skepticism 
from the knowledge that I have of the times when we have been given inaccurate information and we have been led to conclusions that have caused for a call here in America for a response that is historically, within reflection, not the correct response. If I can just say one more thing, though, I, I appreciate that. I guess I'm, I'm torn as well because yeah. I'm, I'm, I, your observation resonates with me. But I'm also concerned. I'm like, but people are starving. Well, yeah, and I'm not saying because I think your assessment of the kind of white savior complex of the democratic West, quote unquote, is a problem and that that we don't know what is right and how to proceed. Um, I think when you have broad sort of coalitional support, whether it's NATO or whether it's, you know, some other kind of coalition, I think that's always best. And yet, you know, your legitimate in, in understandable kind of skepticism about am I getting all the facts, this sort of thing could also be interpreted perhaps as a same sort of like laissez-faire approach to things. Yeah. You know? I mean that it's it's a tempering to say, well, we've screwed this up before. I don't trust that we do this now. I mean, I think it just goes to show the historical consequences yeah. of our of our overreaching and of our mistakes. And and I love what you said a moment ago about this is a tricky thing about international affairs. Like if the Cuban people, you know, want to live in a kind of explicitly socialist or communist context or what – or the Venezuelans, this populist sort of socialist context, you know, I don't think we should write that off as inherently problematic. The question is – and this is the tricky question that I don't have an answer for and I, it's clear you're, you're struggling to find one too. Well, where do you draw the line? You know, when is it okay to, to transgress those sovereign nation-state borders? You know, this was one of the things with, you know, the Clinton administration, whether it's Somalia. So is it when millions of people are starving to death because of, you know, famine? Or is it the Rwandan situation? Well, you know, this is an internal political issue. You know, let them figure that out. And then people are macheting them, you know, their yeah. neighbors to death. And, and historically, we have transgressed those borders when it has become difficult for British Petroleum to set the that's price right. of oil that they wish. That's right. I, and that's where I'm 100% on, page with, on the same page with you. The question is... How do we hold the tension of acknowledging that historical problem and not falling easily into the trap of repeating that and yet not let that scare us into inaction? I guess that was my earlier parallel with the African examples where I'm like, you know, to justify being a little bit tentative about going into Rwanda after we jumped right into Somalia to help people in a humanitarian crisis, look at what happened there. Yeah, I, and I feel like that's what we're on the path in Venezuela with, like – it's it's getting to the point where I, in a couple of weeks, military intervention is gonna is is the only other option if things don't. I don't know how else it's gonna change, and I'm not advocating that. Right, I get I'm, it. I'm just afraid that it's you know, things are gonna get way way worse before they get better. Yeah, and I mean, so fear and trembling and prayer and fasting, I think, are are part of what we can be doing, and to be wise as serpents, you know, and innocent as doves in this particular case, you know, to realize that. You know, everything that needs that we get uh, right now needs to be tested, but that the need to test it is, as you rightly say, also not a call to simple inaction. And so I, you know, if, if listeners have thoughts on this, we'd love to hear them. And partly because we're struggling with this ourselves, uh, we're continuing to pray for the situation. And I know that you folks are too. With that, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran, and we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. 
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together and talk about issues and topics seen through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. And so, Dan, today I want to turn to uh, a recent column that you wrote for the National Catholic Reporter. Uh, listeners that are interested, it was published on February 20th, 2019, and it's your criticism of the bishop's letter on racism that was promulgated recently. And so, uh, let me just first of all ask you, when you were writing this column, what were you trying to accomplish? I mean, you're a, you're a priest, and you're, you're now speaking to bishops. What, what are you trying to say to them? Yeah, in, in some sense, this is addressed to bishops, but it's, it's more broad than that. I mean, on the one hand, so just by way of background, in, in November of 2018 at the USCCB gathering, in our earlier segment, we made reference to that with regard to the sex abuse crisis and some of the policies that were originally on the agenda that were never voted on. One of the agenda items that was addressed was this document on racism in the U.S. context that had been in the draft, kind of in the works for some time. And in a sense, the bishops have spoken. They they voted on this overwhelmingly. It was approved in November 2018 and therefore is an exercise of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops' ordinary magisterium. This is teaching that is relevant to, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, if not authoritative doctrine, then it is certainly a prudential admonition. It's, it's to guide the faithful in their understanding of the faith and their living of their lives in the U.S. context. And so the bishops have spoken, and it's now the responsibility of theologians, of pastoral leaders to incorporate this, to engage it. And, and so my response as, as a theologian operating in a public square, as a columnist in this case addressing a broader audience, is to point out where I think there are some things that are very good here and where there are some problematic dimensions. And so the key thing here is, and, and again, I don't come up with the headlines of these columns. The the editors do. Uh, there's a. I was going to ask you about that because the headline is, The Bishop's Letter Fails to Recognize That Racism is a White Problem, yeah. which to me, I, I was convicted by. I was like, yeah. Yeah, so, but. I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like it's clickbait. It's not, it's not misleading. That is really my point at the end of the day. So it's actually one of one of the better headlines I've seen. But that's exactly what I was going to point out. That it, it seems to look like I'm going after the document, and to some extent, I am. I'm not going after the bishops. I'm going after the final document. And this is one of these things, sort of like in an earlier column when I was talking about the Synod on Young People's final document, and we've talked about this on air here too on the program, that. It's not that the whole thing is wrong and that the it, – it's just that when you have a consensus document where people are building it by committee and voting on it piece by piece or – Paragraph by paragraph, literally. Yeah, definitely in the case of the Synod. In this case, not as much, but there were certain things that were rejected, certain things that were added, you know, that didn't get the full kind of approval. And in one of the most glaring things I saw with this document – is that in the 40 years since the last time the bishops have released a pastoral statement on racism, they still have yet to grapple with, A, the reality of systemic, structural, or institutional racism that also affects the church, and B, acknowledge the kind of what I call, you know, the sinner. <laughs> we can talk about the sin. Racism is a sin. You know, this document makes it clear. The document Brothers and Sisters to Us in 1979 made it clear. No one, no one doubts that racism is a sin, and if you do that's a big problem, right? And so I, I have this line in here where I say, another document that says that is not necessary. We know that. The question is, are we going to name the sinner? So 
you know, one of the things that is just really striking is the way in which, for instance, the the, the style, the the phrasing of some of the sentences, some of the articulations, there's a kind of backflipping that, that as I read it, and as somebody who's, who's a rather prolific author, an understanding of the construction. So all these sentences are, are, are passively constructed. So African-Americans have been branded. African-Americans were disadvantaged. Hispanics have been referred to. By whom? Yeah, and that's, I love what you did with that because, again, we have this reflex to protect the feelings of the privileged. And we've, we've seen that in various ways in the past three months. Anytime that, that racism is directly named, everyone scatters and goes, what, who me? Who me? No, not me. I don't feel racist. No. How dare you call me racist? And so there's this desire to protect the feelings. And so we always end up casting it in this kind of passive voice as if it's something natural that happens like a rock falling on someone's head as opposed to someone engineering a rock to fall on someone's head. And there's only so much that I can, you know, cover in, in one column. And so, you know, I'm just trying to keep that very narrowly focused. But in a lecture that I gave last week um, on a similar topic, which was uh, about how Thomas Merton in his writings acknowledges that racism is a white problem, as well as highlighting not just the prophetic dimensions of his work, but the, the limitations as well. One of the things I talk about at the very end of that lecture is this new document from the USCCB. And I say that for all the contextual limitations and, and problems with Merton's own kind of white self-criticality and articulation and, and how he didn't adequately take into consideration his own whiteness in talking about race and racism in the 1960s, he still was light years ahead of, of the U.S. bishops in 2019. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, what happens is there's this false narrative that this new document that the USCCB has has approved that replicates what the scholar Eduardo Bonilla Silva calls racism without racists. That we can all get on the bandwagon and say that racism is inherently problematic. Part of the problem I have, and I mentioned this in my column with this document, is that though they do acknowledge, the bishops collectively in this statement, do acknowledge the reality of systemic racism or institutional racism, it's pages and pages and pages after they define racism as a personal issue. It's when you have a personal bias or prejudice based on one's color, ethnic affiliation or heritage, one's skin color and so forth. So, But that that's a difficulty that speaks to a larger kind of problem in the way that we – particularly those that are raised in kind of Western liberalism, think about these issues. And, and part of that is there's a dimension between the state and the individual. And that dimension is a collective dimension. So if you think about a sports team, you know, one of the reasons why I love the San Antonio Spurs is that they actually managed to play as a team instead of a group of kind of agglomerated hotshots. You know, functioning as a, as a collective in some way is both for good and for ill – a dimension that has to be thought about. And so even though a person may not have a an individual animus or an individual racism, a person can still benefit from the structures of racism that have been put in place, redlining, uh, economic advantage, the disenfranchisement of those of generations past, or the, the accumulation of capital due to the exploitation of labor, of slaves. All of those things are available to me as a white person. I don't have to feel bad about 
a particular person of color in order to avail myself of any of those. And having grown up in the South, I've watched this mechanism happen, you know, never acknowledged, but very evident how a person of color can be disenfranchised and everyone who is white can feel great about it and feel like they're still helping the people of color while the same institutional differentiations that allow for the continued exploitation and violence against people of color can exist. And this to me is is what needs to be named and isn't being named in this document is that that collective structural dimension that does exist and does have effects and is not dependent upon any particular individuals having animus. And that gets missed in this document. Yeah, or that it's that it's there, but it's on such a subtle, socialized, internalized form that it's you can't I'll put it this way. There's nothing in this document. There's nothing about racism in its structural iteration, its reality as as a systemic problem that persons of color don't already know. Right. So the question I have is to whom is this document written? Mm. For whom is it Mm. written? And if it's not written for white people to unsettle them, to challenge them, to see that the other side of racist oppression is uh, racist you know, uh, superiority, racist privilege, what we call white privilege or white supremacy, then what is the point? Yeah. What is the point? So, you know, I think, I, I don't know. I was not, I'm not on this committee. I was, I'm not a bishop. Thanks be to God. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever will be. And so I, I, you know, I don't know the ins and outs. I know that this was a, a teaching document, a pastoral statement that was released, and this is where they stand. But, like, if you just take a look at the construction of the, of the text, what words appear? You know, I make this remark in my column that the word sin appears at least 14 times, racism more than 50, but terms privilege or supremacy are never mentioned. And the the use of the term white only appears with historical reference. And, and it's just so striking that, for instance, when in this section on Native Americans, there are reference to these white European explorers and pioneers, almost this heroic thing. There's no acknowledgement of colonization, again, because the construction of of the discrete acts of violence and animus and genocide are almost as if it just befalls, you know, these, these oppressed, minoritized groups. And so I don't know. I just really struggle with the fact that whether intended or not, I don't want to make claims about intention or malicious intent, but the, but the, it, there is this letting whites too easily off the hook in acknowledging that we are complicit in this. Well, and, and so you are naming the way in which the bishops in writing this are availing themselves and reinscribing the very problem that we're trying to highlight, and that is it is possible to write a document like this in a naturalistic tone as if the wild is the reason why these people of color have suffered, you know, natural consequences. And, oh, and at the same time as these natural consequences are happening, we happen to also be pioneers. So it's possible to remove any possibility of animus on the part of the bishops as well. They're completely innocent in writing this document. They've just chosen to write it in a very neutral tone. Well, no, in choosing to write it in a neutral tone, you have already made a political, you've made a political statement. And contrast a document like this to James Cone's, you know, God of the Oppressed or Black Theology, Black Power. The difference in tone and the ability to name the structures is evident. And 
even though we, I mean, I, what I what I love about what you just did is you said you don't know the minds of the bishops. Okay, that's the very problem that we're talking about because we don't know the minds of the individual people who have participated in racism through the years as well. We can't say that they were racists. But there is a structural evidence of racism, both on the ground in the history that we're talking about and in this document. This document avails itself of structural racism. Do you sort of see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the pro- one, there are many problems. I, I think one of the problems is how we use the term racist. Yes. And this is what critical race theorists and other scholars have pointed out is that we have used it as a bludgeoned over people and we've limited it to individual individuals and individual acts of violence or racial animus. And so if you belong to the KKK, you're a racist. If you're Representative Stephen King in uh, in the Midwest, you're a racist. Well, in both cases, yes. Yes, yes, that's true, right? You know, because you embrace, you speak, you operate according to discrete acts of, of violence and prejudice. Here's the problem, though, Yeah, is that everybody is implicated in, in racism yes. as a system here in the United States because this is a white supremacist, anti-black racist culture and society and de facto the church because the church is in the modern world. Yes. And so one of the things is the mechanism of structural racism, of systemic racism actually covers over the complicity and culpability of the aggressor, of the sinner, to put it in the kind of religious language, that is of white people. So you're wanting to reverse what I just did because I'm trying to name something that happens when we try and say, well, I'm not racist. But you're saying, no, sometimes we do need to name individuals as racist. Or am I hearing no, you No, I think it's a both and. Okay. What I, well, I, what I need to say is that everybody, <laughs> this is going to come across, real. people are going to get very defensive, and they do. Because we identify the term racist, you know, there's almost no you know, expression, there's no word you can throw at particularly a white person that's more offensive than to call somebody a racist. Because everybody knows racism is bad. Mm -hmm. It goes back to my point. Why do we need another document that just simply reinscribes that? We already know that. My point is to say that we need to expand our understanding of racism. Yes, there are these discrete individual acts of racist animus, mm-hmm. right? The KKK, neo-Nazis, you know, individuals who are po- politicians who, who peddle in this kind of language, right, and so forth. And yet, everybody, including persons of color, right, white people and people of color in the United States are both affected by the reality of racism. Agreed. White people have this internalized racial superiority, And they don't realize it because the mechanisms, the structures, the social norms into which they've been socialized covers over that privilege. They don't see it because it doesn't happen to them and they can convince themselves that because I don't fit the bill of somebody who uses racial slurs or who doesn't harbor some sort of active hatred of somebody by virtue of ethnicity or religion or race, that I'm a good person. I am not a racist. Well, and it's even more than this. So a a community is disenfranchised of its historical population through gentrification and economic changes. You know, a bank decides to cease the redlining and begin to invest in certain pockets of the community that end up raising prices and forces people out. And then white people tend to move into that community or can move into, of of means, middle-class white people can move into that community and think to themselves, I worked hard to get here. Right. And this is my reward. So, yeah, I mean, what you're naming is a a great example. I think it's, we can't even get there yet. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't even address that yet is is something I would would argue. And, you know, I gave this lecture last week and in the Q&A, somebody said, well, what, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm convinced by this. So how do we, what's the action plan? And I said, I don't know. 
in large part because you're one person who now sees this. He was a white man who now sees in a new way this reality. And, and, and I said, but the mechanism itself, I said, the first stage, you can't, can't jump into a plan to correct these things th- without the kind of coming to an awareness of the reality as it actually is. But there, there's a piece of this, though, that we need to name. And, and James Cone, again, brings this to us, and, and not just James Cone, but the people that worked at Highlander, the people that worked in the civil rights movement. We know as persons of privilege that we're doing something right when we begin to be attacked as the people who are marginalized or attacked when we're, when we're there in solidarity. And so just to take an example, you know, when you and I speak out uh, along with Jim Martin and others in solidarity with those that are same-sex attracted, with gays and lesbians and bisexuals, we begin to be attacked as they are attacked in various ways. And certainly we have the privilege of stepping away from that, but it's, it's always an indication in terms of action. Okay, at least this action, it's making me a lightning rod like those people are a lightning rod. That means that solidarity is happening. That's at least an indicator that I'm on the right track away from privilege. I think so. I think so. I, I would push back. I, I think you're right, but it can't be the end in itself. No. It isn't really solidarity, and it isn't really being oppressed in the same way that those who are, as the scholars call, minoritized communities fair are. Fair point, fair point. Because it's not about, and this is something I got a lot in response to this column I've seen on the internet, that people, and, and in person, people have pushed back and say, well, what about tribal, you know, skin color isn't the real issue. It's not a white problem because what about, you know, go back to the Rwanda example. And so so that that can't be the issue. It's not phenotype that's a problem. And my point is that's not the point. As you invoke James Cone, James Cone will talk about whiteness is not just phenotype. It's a sense of power identity and it's yeah. a role in society. And that's going to be different in Rwanda than it is in America. Correct. But there are minoritized groups that we can identify with this. I think the big problem is that you know, we have to, particularly as, you know, white people in a structurally and systemically racist context, recognize that it's not enough just to acknowledge that racism is a white problem and that means that we're in solidarity, even if we're being attacked. Because there are different ways in which the acknowledgement itself can be a bomb for us to feel better about our complicity and maybe even personal culpability in a anti-black racist context. And so one of the things that a lot of critical race theorists have been pointing out, philosophers and sociologists have been pointing out, is this is an ongoing conversion experience that calls for reorientation of one's worldview. And so, you know, just because I wrote this column, just because I lecture on this, just because you and I talk about this doesn't mean we are in solidarity with anybody. It just means this is the very fundamental, basic thing we can do. That was my response to that gentleman, which is, it's it's a very, very complex issue, but it begins with this constant reorientation. We are not better for acknowledging this. We still benefit, right? And so there are ways that we can deploy privilege, deploy power that's unwittingly given to us or that is afforded to us by our positions in society, how we use that or how we reject that or how we kind of you know, transform that or strategize around that is very, very important. But it, it ultimately requires an ongoing, in, in, in a religious context, ongoing sense of conversion of how do I live differently? How can I change? How can I become more attuned to these dynamics? And what can I do in response? Not in a white savior sort of way. What can I do to help the oppressed Native Americans or the oppressed black people? You know, it, it's, so it's deeply, deeply complicated. And I think that's one of the challenges is that systemic racism is, is very nuanced There are mechanisms in place that affect, as I mentioned, not just white people and recognizing that white is a performative racial marker 
as much as the arbitrary marking of persons of color by, by skin tone or, or other phenotype is important uh, to acknowledge. But also people of color are they, – they have internalized racist oppression and that they're affected by this too. So I mean th- it's deeply, deeply, deeply seated and rooted in our society and there are no easy quick fixes. And so I guess to kind of sum up the point of the column is for us to say not only is this insufficient because it makes it sound like – and it does. The document itself, there are some good things about it. I'm not trying to poo-poo the whole thing. And I'm glad that the bishops are collectively talking about this. I'm just very, very disappointed that they have not gotten anywhere in 40 years. And in fact, one goes back, the Brothers and Sisters to Us document, the title is abysmal. The title is, is almost, if it weren't so tragic, it would be a joke. But the document itself is actually much more powerful in its assertion about problems of, of a racist society, frankly, in my opinion, than Open Wide Our Arms, the November 2018 document. So we have a long way to go. And I guess that's my point in that if we're not going to take the, the risk of self-criticality of, of the majority, excessively majority white bishops conference – turning the lens on themselves and and implicating themselves in the same way that the bishops have been around the sex abuse crisis saying that, yeah, maybe I didn't cover up abusive priests because I've only been a bishop for the last 10 years. However, as somebody in this position, I'm complicit in a structure, in a system that is responsible for these things. So too, in in a racist society such as ours, we have to acknowledge this, and it hasn't been done. Well, thank you for the column, and also thank you for taking some time to talk to me about it. I appreciate very much the the nuance that you're trying to get around this issue, and particularly around the, the notion of an easy fix to this, because there is not one. And that's probably where we need to leave it today. Dan, thank you so much for being with me. I'm glad to be with you. And uh, if you happen to be in Anaheim, come be with us uh, at the L.A. Congress of Religious Education. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed in this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes from our first couple of seasons, and you can listen to all of them on our website. Thanks for listening.